Hello. Hi, let's get into some gay shit. <laughs> yeah, so uh yeah, we're finishing up uh Pride Month here. Yes, yes, we hope everybody has had a wonderful Pride. There's still several days to go, but we hope that you are all celebrating mm-hmm. beautifully. I do want to tell a little uh slight little story. Okay. Semi-pride related. So I was just at StokerCon. Mm-hmm. And at the same time that we were at StokerCon, there was a big, massive Taylor Swift concert in Pittsburgh Ugh. at the same Ugh. time. Uh-huh. <laughs> but all the Swifties and all the like StokerCon weirdos were all essentially staying at the same hotel in downtown mm-hmm. Pittsburgh. And it was like, at first it was like, clearly the Swifty kids who were all like teenagers, all covered in glitter, like, mm-hmm. you know, were fairly freaked out by the horror weirdos. Like, I, what? Like, okay, you said this in your text. What the hell did you all look like for people to I be mean, freaked they out look by like, you? Well, they look like me, but we're all wearing like like slasher movie t shirts and stuff, you know. And these, and again, these are like fourteen year old Swifties, you know. So they're like, who are these people? To be clear, I am rolling my eyes at anybody who would be freaked out by somebody <laughs> in a slasher. T- I like the you're rolling your of eyes attention. at the Swifties. Yeah. Yes, yeah, well, like gonna, I, that's just ridiculous. What I was gonna say is that that like that went away pretty quickly because i think the swifties noticed that all the horror weirdos all had uh we all had like pride gear and stuff and like (laughs) pride swag and so they were like okay what is your story and so uh sarah tantlinger who was on the show she posted the thing where it was like yeah all the swifties were actually super sweet and they were like what are you guys here for a dracula concert (laughs) a dracula concert (laughs) i was like well and everyone's like oh man we need to have a dracula concert now (laughs) but yeah but like as they got over their initial like trepidation i think pride kind of brought us all together yay and we actually a group of us met a swifty in a bar uh she was Uh a little older that's why she was in the bar she was like in her early 20s but she was like a massive horror fan and was like starstruck to meet us like weird indie horror writers very like, cool super sweet so like the swifties kind of won me over by i love by that end. yeah i love that the venn diagram of swifties and indie horror writers the convergence is pride yeah yeah that, um, and i think that really was it because i think you know it was a bunch of like weird i mean obviously it was like you know the the stoker con crowd there's lots of women and stuff too but there's just lots of like beardo dudes who look like me wearing like heavy metal and horror t-shirts and all these like 14 year old swifties running around being like we're supposed to be in a nice hotel like what's happening here <laughs> um but yeah it ended up being uh kind of a nice coming together so beautiful happy pride Happy Pride, everybody. Um, yeah, so yeah, I guess should we should we get into some gay shit? 
Yeah, let's get into some gay shit. So I think you're starting this week. I am starting this week. And I just realized that I, did I leave a, I did leave a source off, but I know what it is. And so I'll just say it right in there. Okay. So in my quest to find a story for this week, I was like scouring the interwebs for interesting queer stories. And this kind of goes along with what we talked about in our Ask Me Anything Mm -hmm. episode is that like, when we have something like this, whether it's Black History month or mm. pride or whatever like yes there is absolutely like you know i could cover stonewall but like mm-hmm. i am not going to bring anything new to the stonewall story there are right. plenty of other podcasts that cover that mm-hmm. event and so i wanted to try to find something that was maybe a little bit more off the beaten path right yeah so i'm scouring the interwebs for like interesting queer stories and i'm watching a lot of rupaul's drag race which plays into the story <laughs> i promise Uh, Because in an episode, one of the judges mentioned not remembering what a red bandana stood for. And it tickled like this distant memory in my brain about the handkerchief code or the hanky code. Mm. Scotty, do you do you know anything about the hanky code? I know of it. I mean, I, if you were to ask me to like describe it for you, I would not be able to. Okay, I have heard of it. Great. So for anybody who doesn't know, the hanky code is a semi semiotic code of sexual advertising. So Mm -hmm. put a little bit more plainly, it's a color-coded system for non-verbally communicating one's sexual interest, kinks, and fetishes. Mm -hmm. The color of the bandana, the print, and what pocket you wear your bandana in Mm -hmm. signal to others what kind of stuff you're into. And like... Like the left pocket is I like to do that. And like the right pocket can be like, I like to have that done to me. So while I was digging into the hanky code, I kept seeing mentions of some dude's address book. And I was like, what the hell? Like, Hmm. what is this? Who the hell is this guy? And like, why does everybody care about his, you know, fucking address book? And what followed was a good old fashioned weirdest thing rabbit hole to led me that led me to something that I know nothing about. And so today I'm going to share that story with you. And I'm going to tell you about Bob Dameron's address book. Okay. Sources for this are mappingthegayguides.org, an article from Mother Jones, an article from the Saint Foundation, and article from LA Magazine, an article from Slate, um, stuff on a website called GCN.ie. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. And an article from Condé Nast. Right. So who the hell was Bob Dameron? Bob Dameron was born in 1928 in Los Angeles. He completed uh, high school and one year of Los Angeles Community College before he was like, Mm -mm. this higher education thing is for the birds. (laughs) I'm going to buy a bar. And Mm -hmm. um, he bought this place called The Gaiety when he was just 22 years old. Oh, wow. The Gaiety was actually a straight bar until Bob's gay friends started showing up. And it turned into a gay bar. So mm-hmm. reverse gentrification. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, Bob moves up to San Francisco where he opens more gay bars and he becomes this like successful gay entrepreneur and this prominent member of the Castro District community. Okay. FYI, just a cool side note, the Castro District is one of the oldest gay neighborhoods in the country. Mm-hmm. In the early 1960s, Bob is, because he's a businessman, he's traveling all over the country. And when he would go to a different city, he would seek out whatever gay scene there was, and right. he would make little notes about it. So, you know, he'd be 
like such and such town, great nightlife, has a great underground scene. He would even jot down stuff like the bartender here is a real bitch, Mm -hmm. like that kind of stuff. He would go back home. He'd gather up all of his notes and he would make copies for his friends who might be visiting one of the cities that he had been in so that they would have a little bit of a guide to the queer spaces in these individual cities. Mm. At a certain point, he was like, um... There's actually like a pretty broad audience, like a, a, not a broad, a wider audience for this kind of stuff. And I think I could like market and sell these to the gay community. Gina Gatta, who now owns the Dameron Company, says, quote, like a Bible salesman, Bob would get on the road, he would travel around and he would find the gays and he would find (laughs) the bars and the bathhouses. So Bob ended up creating this sort of like green book for gay men. Scotty, mm-hmm. what do you know about the Green Book? I know they made a movie about it. They did make a movie about <laughs> it and it was and I'd heard that it was whole Oscar the, and right. the Oscars around it were a mess. Yeah, I don't remember much more than that. The Green Book, and I'm not remembering the full title of it. I want to say the title of it was using an outdated word, but I think it was like the Negro Motorists Green Book. And Mm. it was basically a guide for, I think, at least in the beginning, the South that would let Black travelers know what places were safe for them. So like like, restaurants that would serve them, hotels that would serve them, you know, and any other, I think it also listed like dangers, like don't be in this, like it would list sundown towns and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So Bob Dameron sort of ends up creating the gay version of hmm. of the Green Book. Uh, long before the internet Yelp and Grinder, Bob Dameron's <laughs> address book shaped queer America. Hmm. So five years before Stonewall in 1964, we're talking about a time when gay sex is illegal everywhere but Illinois. I have no idea <laughs> why it was not illegal in Illinois. Well. Ahead I don't of the know. Curve, I, I don't. This is the thing with this is that it's like, were they ahead of the curve? Were they just like, we're not putting that on the books? Like, we're mm. not going to make a law about it. Everybody knows that you so shouldn't do it. Behind the curve, that it didn't <laughs> that even they were like gay sex. Like, wait, what? You put it yeah. where? Like, yeah. yeah, I have no idea. Right. So, <laughs> like, yay for Illinois, but it's with it's with a with an, with an asterisk. asterisk because we don't know awareness of queer spaces was basically spread at this time via like a whisper network. Mm -hmm. Like if you wanted to know what the gay scene was, you had to talk to other gay people um, and to sort of find, you know, you'd sort of find out from that. Bob was not the first to try and catalog all the spaces into one guide, but there were others like the Lavender Bedecker who didn't last as long. And it seems like these publications, the reason that they didn't last as long is because these publications would advertise in gay men's physique magazines, Mm. which my understanding of these gay men's physique magazines is that they weren't like, they weren't porn to my understanding. I think it was just like really well-built men in like swimsuits and stuff Mm -hmm. like posing. So it was a sort of like, no, this is like body appreciation, like physique appreciation, bodybuilding kind of stuff, but it was super gay. It was like how all the the pre-internet kids used to like steal the bikini catalogs and use that for their yeah it's it's akin to that yeah but because these magazines were going out through the mail they were getting busted for busted and prosecuted for obscenity Mm -hmm. so they're basically railroaded out of business right bob's address book was different there were no 
hot shirtless men on the cover. <laughs> it was small enough to fit in your pocket. And the word gay didn't appear on the cover until 1999. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. It literally said Bob Dameron's address book or the address book on the cover. Mm. That was it. So it was like discreet as fuck. Yeah. The discreet nature was imperative to the guide's survival because Bob wanted to create something that should it fall into the wrong hands, wouldn't mean immediate danger for the establishments listed in it or the people who patronized those establishments. Right, or for whoever was carrying it. The God, God. Yes. The book itself had no mentions of gay life, and the entry... The entries didn't even have descriptions, just addresses. This is like we're talking early years. So mm. the first entry in the book, I believe the 1965 edition, is for Birmingham, Alabama, and it reads simply Fire Pit with an asterisk, 1915 Fifth Avenue North. Mm. That's it. The asterisk is part of a key that was listed at the beginning of the book that would help you discern like some of the cues and clues mm. about the scene, but you still kind of had to know the lingo. Right. For example, the asterisk means that a place is particularly popular. Okay. A C, a letter C, means that the place serves coffee. And an M means the crowd is mixed, meaning you will find gay men there, but also straight folks and or tourists. Okay. We're going to come back to the key in a second. So Bob goes around 200 cities in 37 states during the address book's first year. He would personally check out the gay scene in any given town. He would make notes. He'd talk to the locals and he would take all of that info back to San Francisco to put it in the next edition of the address book. People mm. could also call or write in suggestions for listings. Bob would add that to the mix. He would then go back out to these places. He would deliver the newest edition of the book and he'd be like, what's new? What's happening? What's closed? What's been rated mm -hmm. and ga again gather all that information go back to san francisco add it to the next edition so this had to be like updated like every year it, it was like. being updated every year yeah that's a many job. yeah many listings were removed after police got their hands on copies and rated the businesses listed there making them of course unsafe for mm -hmm. lgbtq travelers gina gata actually has bob's own 1965 copy of the book which has businesses scratched out by bob's hand in blue ink so mm. like he did the 65 one when he went out for the 66 one he was like this place closed this place nope. closed this place right. doesn't exist and some of them would have notes like closed but allegedly reopening soon mm. okay. stuff like that or like closed a uh, reopened two blocks down the road mm. That first year, Bob printed 3,000 copies of the address book. By the time the company was sold in 1987, it included international listings, wow. and 100,000 copies were being circulated annually. Oh, wow. It's still pretty much U.S.-based. Like, it's not like you can open it up and find stuff for, like, London. You can find stuff for Mexico, Puerto Rico, Guam, mm -hmm. like, territories in and around mm. the United States. Okay. But there you go. Okay. So that happens. 
And it's going and going and going and going. Mm -hmm. In 2020, Dr. Amanda Reagan and Dr. Eric Gonzaba launched Mapping the Gay Guides. It's a project dedicated to digitizing the Dameron address books. Mm. This comes directly from the Mapping the Gay Guides website, which I'm now going to refer to as MGG. So this is from the MGG website. It says, quote, similar in function to the green books used by African Americans during Jim Crow era to help identify businesses that catered to Black clients in the South, the Dameron Guides aided a generation of queer people to identify sites of community, pleasure, and politics. So the address book was about so much more than just finding a gay bar. Right. The MGG has created a data set that ranges currently from 1965 to around 1980 but like in the time that i was doing the research for this episode that has been extended like it's mm. it's a it's a work in progress right now right it is searchable by state so you can see for instance that in 1965 there were six entries for the state of new mexico and they mm. included jacques in roswell mm. the newsroom the office and Oki joe's in albuquerque and the pink adobe and the senate in santa fe i Heard of the pink adobe. Mm -hmm. The listings might include things like a, like a physical address, mm -hmm. for instance, seventeen twenty Central Avenue Southeast for Okie Joe's. That is the southwest corner of Central and University. Oh, now for any of our Albuquerque folks, a Seven so, Eleven. I was going to say that's the Seven Eleven now. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's a Seven Eleven. Yeah, um, less exciting. Yeah, instructions for getting into the place, things like side entrance downstairs for the newsroom, what type of business it was, bars slash clubs, restaurants, bathhouses, etc., and the amenities, which were listed by that key code that I mentioned. Yeah. According to the key, Jacques and Roswell was mixed, which meant it had a gay and straight clientele. The newsroom offered dancing and was very popular. And the pink adobe in Santa Fe had girls, but it was seldom exclusively girls. You can literally go year by year and see how the gay scene in any given town evolved via the right. address book. I'm surprised there was a place in Roswell that far back that was friendly. You would be, okay, so I'm going to talk about this a little bit later too, but this isn't necessarily, like there was um, a quote in, I think the Slate article maybe, <laughs> where they were talking about, it's like one of the last existing bars that was like in the original address book that is still standing and it is still mm. that business now. And the owner was like, I didn't know we were a gay bar. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Well, because people are keeping things discreet. And, yeah. Yeah. So that's happening a lot where it's like you can go there and like you probably won't get thrown out, but it's also not like a big old gay club. Yeah. There's still got a, it's still probably sort of like what was the airport restroom stories where you have to like act in a certain code kind of way. <laughs> was that fucking senator got busted. Yes. Yes. Um, so with the map, with this website, you can literally go year by year to see how the gay scene, like I said, in any given town has evolved. The location that is now home to the Albuquerque Social Club, which is Albuquerque's oldest gay bar, mm -hmm. it makes its first appearance in 1975 as the finishing school. I think I knew that. And the notes read, the notes read that there are some girls and to use the rear entrance behind Mildred's. Mm, interesting. The, but just sidebar, the Albuquerque Social Club is super fun time. I've been there for a few. 
like drag shows and stuff. And they were in, I don't remember if it was because of COVID or if they were having some trouble already, but they were like, we have to close. Like Mm -hmm. I think back in like 2020, they were like, we have to close. And uh, I think they maybe started a crowdfunding thing. Mm -hmm. And as far as I know, they are back up and running. Mm -hmm. So I kind of remember the crowdfunding thing. I hadn't heard for sure whether they got back up. That's good to hear. I believe so, because I believe I'm almost, I'm like 99% positive that I know people who have gone to pride events this year at the school. Okay, cool. Yeah. Local favorite Greasy Spoon Diner and location for one of Duke City Rep's trailers, Cap's Coffee Shop, Mm. was all it makes its first appearance in 1975. Oh, nice. Yeah. By 1980, New Mexico's entries had grown to 20 and included things like UNM Geology Building, Electrical Building, and Gym North Showers Uh as cruisy spots mm-hmm. so spots yeah. where you could go and cruise and try to hook up it's also it's also stuff like it's like central avenue hitchhiking or in cars mm. and then it just says cruisy spot and you're like that i mean just knowing central avenue now that sounds terrifying yeah <laughs> oh my god a quick sidebar about mapping the gay guides they recently received funding from the national endowment for the humanities to continue digitizing the address book for years 1890 i'm sorry Mm. 1991, <laughs> 1981 through 2000. Nice. So they've gotten funding to continue the project and it's super cool. The map in and of itself is this like really fascinating time capsule of gay culture. The website has a ton of articles that they call vignettes that go much more into depth about what doctors Reagan and Gonzaga are discovering about gay culture from the 1960s through the AIDS crisis and beyond. Mm-hmm. For example, it is a long-held belief by a, a fair amount of historians that the large coastal cities like New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco were the epicenters of gay American culture and that queer life didn't really exist outside of these places. Mm -hmm. Author Paula Martinak, who wrote the 1997 book, The Queerest Places, A Guide to Gay and Lesbian Historic Sites, divides her state summaries into regions, New England, Mid-Atlantic, Midwest, West, and South. Mm -hmm. She lists 11 states in her Southern chapters, but there are zero entries for Alabama. Mm -hmm. But like I just mentioned, the first entry in the first address book was for Birmingham, Alabama. Mm So there's, it's, it's showing that like, maybe it wasn't as like, maybe the numbers weren't, maybe they didn't number as high and maybe it was a little bit more in the shadows, Mm -hmm. but like queer stuff was going on clearly all over the country. I mean, and well, in a place like Alabama, I'm guessing it was a lot more in the shadows. I think so. There's, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll finish, but there's a bunch of like really interesting stuff about the South um, Mm -hmm. on the MGG website. Okay. So. A state like Alabama might have been characterized as inhospitable for queer life, but Bob had eight listings for the state in 1965 and hmm. 57 in 1980. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Kentucky had, again, talking about the 1965 edition, Kentucky had four, Mississippi had seven, Louisiana had three, and Missouri had 23. Yeah, that was a little shocking to me in 1965. Maybe like Kansas City, because I think Kansas City has always been sort of a liberal ish. Mm hmm. So it's a little more progressive than the rest of the state. So I don't know, maybe St. Louis too. And I think a lot of them probably were in, you know, the larger cities in these states. 
But like we yeah. had one in Roswell and Roswell. We had one in Roswell. Roswell's basically West Texas. So. Mm-hmm. And I think if you go up through 1980, like there's one in Lordsburg. Oh, wow. Like there, yeah, it starts to be like, you're like, wow, like there was a space. There was a space. Little uh, callback to early odds and ends episode with the Lordsburg door and the pterodactyls. So. Yes, precisely. Yeah. And that's clearly they needed a gay bar. Right. So- I didn't go through all of the states for 1965, but I was sort of like going through and being like, what place, what places do I think were the least likely to have some kind of queer presence? Mm-hmm. The only state I was able to find that had no listings for 1965 was Alaska. I was going to say, I would think, although Alaska, like, I think it's like the majority of the population is men. So you would think that that would have tracks well and i was also like bob was road tripping yeah maybe he just didn't make it up there maybe he just didn't make it up to alaska (laughs) that that would that that would track (laughs) you know that would track yeah yeah like wyoming had four montana Hmm. had five Hmm. like i was going through and it was all you know and again it's all probably stuff that's like mixed spaces but Mm -hmm. it was you know there was there yeah yeah, there was a, a a queer contingent right. patronizing these places. So Drs. Reagan and Gonzaga actually started mapping the guides with the Southern states when they started digitizing the address books. Just some fill-in information. Dr. Reagan is a historian of women's history and Dr. Gonzaga is a historian of LGBTQ nightlife, mm. which again, just like cool. Like these yeah. are things that I wish somebody would have been like, did you know that you could become a historian? <laughs> Right. I was going to say, that seems like a fun degree to get. Yeah. Like very interesting. But anyways, they wanted to showcase that there was a robust queer culture that had Mm -hmm. always existed in the South. And they wanted to sort of challenge assumptions that were made about, you know. Right. I don't know. I feel like there's a there are people out there who are like, this doesn't exist in our town. It's only in those godless big cities Mm -hmm. where people, you know, aren't going to church and they don't have families where they like run amok with drugs and and gay sex and stuff. And it's like, nope, people are having gay sex all over the place. Well, I mean, I think, yeah, I, I I had no question that people were having gay sex all over the place. I guess the surprising thing to me about, like, say, Roswell or the number in Missouri is that there were that many places that were friendly, you know, yeah. or semi. But I think what that shows is that people in these communities, whether it's like all happening in the underground, under the table kind of way, they're going to create those kind of like safe spaces. Exactly. Like they yeah. are going to create those places, whether they're, they're sort of. Way. Yeah, whether they're sort of creating open and out spaces Mm -hmm. or sort of co-opting straight spaces. Right. And it's all kind of coded. Okay. In the Alabama entry in the 1974 edition of the address book, Dameron writes, quote, in this virtual police state, legal hours are by local option, which means dependent upon the whim of the county sheriff. Mm. Bars may be open 24 hours, except on Sundays when all must close from 2 a.m. until 12 midnight. Mm. Usual closing time is 2 or 3 a.m. So Mm. it's also giving you an idea that there's a lot of like, there's spaces where it's like, we can turn a blind, like law enforcement can turn a blind eye to a certain point mm-hmm. well know? but it's all at their whim it's like we'll turn the Precisely. blind eye but as long as we moment, feel like it the moment we decide not to you're fucked 
Right, 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 right. Reagan says what was most surprising to her about mapping the South is how many churches were listed hmm. in the guides. Yeah, that that is definitely surprising. Mm-hmm. And the role that religion played in the gay communities in the mm-hmm. region. There are a lot of things that are listed as, oh, I think it's MCC. I forgot to write it down, but I think it stands for Metropolitan Community Church, hmm. which was, I think, at the time, one of the only churches that recognized and accepted gay members. Okay. And so it was a lot of stuff like that, that again, they were being like, can we like borrow your church for a little church group? And it was like a queer community, Mm, sort of like a queer community center. Another fascinating thing you'll find while perusing the map is several historical sites listed as safe places for gay men. So Example, 1964, LBJ went to Atlanta and that's where he gave the speech at the Dinkler Plaza Hotel. This was his, the new South is here speech. Mm -hmm. I don't think he used the word deviant, but it's some pretty heavily coded language about what he was seeing about like what was happening with like the, the progressiveness that was starting to bubble up in, Mm -hmm. in the South. So he's doing this whole new South is here speech. Um, And downstairs at the Dinkler Plaza, there was a, there was the hotel bar was called the Alibi Lounge. And this was a mixed bar. So gay Mm -hmm. and straight people were having like a grand old time in this like exclusive upscale bar. Well, like literally upstairs LBJ is, preaching mm-hmm. about the new south another another cool thing reagan and gonzaba have discovered while digitizing <laughs> i wrote white digitizing whoop, <laughs> the address books is the relationship between different gay spaces all over the map a great example of this is el paso texas mm. so in the 1970s businesses had to follow el paso texas liquor laws and so this was stuff that like bars had to close at a certain time they needed to have an earlier last call dameron's books stated that after closing time in el paso you just had to cross the bridge into juarez and you would find a number of gay friendly bars that were open well past closing time in el paso Mm. so there was this uh, like uh what's the word i'm looking for yeah you you had queer people who were in el paso and then when those bars shut down they were just like mm-hmm. over to mexico hanging out with mexican locals and doing all that stuff like you know american queer communities mexican queer communities coming together yeah. to to keep on hanging out and this is something that we would not have ever known if it wasn't for the fact that it was listed in the address books interesting well, and I think because back then it was also a lot easier to cross the border. Like, I don't think you needed passports and stuff. Back. I mean, it literally says cross the bridge into Juarez. It doesn't say, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't be like, make sure to have your, pa-. it doesn't say anything. It just yeah. says cross the bridge. into Juarez. Right. It's just like kind of like going to the next county over or something. I think it's like go down the street. Like, mm-hmm. right. It was like, just walk, yeah, like walk over the bridge and Mm -hmm. you'll find lots of places. Yeah. But like I said, we would not have known that that was happening if it wasn't for the fact that it was listed in the address books. Now, this is all super cool and awesome. And like this very interesting slice of queer life in America during these decades. But Mm -hmm. Bob Dameron was a white cis gay man in the 1960s 70s and 80s Mm. so he was not without his own problems limited perspectives yeah first off the address books were really geared to and created by white gay 
men. Mm-hmm. Some of the more problematic explanations of listings, like some of them are listed in the amenities and some of them are just like notes that were made, mm-hmm. but they include things like the letter B, which stood for blacks frequent. The designation appeared for the first time in the 1970 edition. Mm. In the early 1970s, Latins in parentheses started to denote places with a predominantly Latino clientele. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm using Latino here because we are talking about men. RT is listed as raunchy types, hustlers, drags, and other downtown types, which Mm. is like a whole grab bag of problems. Yeah. Yeah. Like we've got downtown types. Mm. Yeah. I mean, we've got some pretty, like, we've got some pretty like, and, and again, like that's all that it was, but he's, he's, Listing this stuff, a listing that included RT was Dameron's early attempt to highlight a place that was like less than reputable. Right. Yeah. So it's like, it's, it's a little gross to see his sort of like, ugh, at but, like sex workers, drag performers, gender expansive folks, and like non-white people. Sure. You know, he also makes note of which spaces allowed women. And it's, it's like sort of seen as a check in the con column, mm-hmm. you know, like he'll list it as like, I mean, this, you know, there's this place, but like they do, like they do have a lot of girls, which is why yeah. there's like, you know, sometimes girls, but not exclusively. It was right. clear that he was like, I don't want to deal with this. Um, <laughs> uh, I will say that his language does evolve from girls to ladies to women, but I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. still give him half a cent's worth of credit. I guess. Yeah. He, he, he just, he kind of like, just didn't want them around mm-hmm. Gina Gatta, who, like I said, owns the Dameron company now says, quote, I believe he was a very prejudiced man. I don't think he liked people of color. And I know he didn't like lesbians. She uses a different term. I'm not going to use it here. Mm-hmm. He'd be rolling over in his grave right now if he knew I was running this company. Gata, which she probably figured out from that quote, is herself a lesbian. Mm. <laughs> she she was like, I, I think he'd be like, he would yeah. be happy about it. Yeah. Some very cool things about the MGG website, which is like I said, mappingthegayguides.org. Um, it is a wonderful rabbit hole to fall into the super, super cool. So go and check that out. But they include a full legend for the amenities code and like sort of through the years. So you can see things uh, you know, like a listing might have A-Y-O-R, and that stands for at your own risk, dangerous, dangerous, usually fuzz, meaning that the police or law enforcement <laughs> mm-hmm. were likely to come by. F and S stood for fun and such, which was men's action places used to communicate that that <laughs> establishment condoned sexual activity on the premises, as opposed fun. to being a place where you could meet somebody and then go somewhere like to an undisclosed second location to have some fun. I want to like open a bar or something just called fun and such. Fun and such. And everybody's leave, like, leave it to the imagination of <laughs> what it would be here. <laughs> Dameron even tries to be sort of like funny and subtle in his entries with stuff like FFA, which he wrote stood for final faith of America or ask your friendly SM serviceman. <laughs> FFA does stand for Future Farmers of America, but it also stands for a particular sex act, which I am <laughs> not going to explain on here and which you can find with a quick Google search. <laughs> the listing for PT reads PT, pool table. If you thought this means something else, just remember the two meanings are often synonymous. That's what the entry says. <laughs> and this is an entry that has like 
puzzled the folks at MGG for a bit. Like they're like, <laughs> what's he saying? Yeah. Like, is he trying? Cause they were like, well, PT also stands for like prick tease, mm-hmm. but that doesn't make any sense of like pool table and prick tease being synonymous. So they're like, what, do, <laughs> what is this? And they're like, not, they're not sure if he was trying to signify something else or if he was just be like, if he was just being cheeky and like hinting at a second meaning to be funny. Mm-hmm. The folks over there are mining through literally tens of thousands of entries and are trying to decipher like what the different annotations mean. Mm-hmm. And additionally, some things are just lost to time. There are entries for places that don't give an actual address, but state simply inquire locally. Mm. Okay. Others don't even have anything like, cause like, um, I saw some places where it was like, you know, like Joe's tavern and it would say address state and Maine inquire locally. Mm-hmm. So you'd be like, okay, well I have a cross streets. And then I kind of need to go around and be like, Hey, where's Joe's tavern? Mm-hmm. Other places just say stuff like us highway 67. <laughs> <laughs> Anywhere along this highway. Just yeah. yeah. One of the listings for New Mexico in 1980 that made me laugh reads simply Sandia Park, foot trails, cruisy area. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, I'm knowing those foot trails, I'm not surprised. Yeah. The MGG product is adding categories to account for things like bookstores, theaters, mm-hmm. escort services. They're working to associate every address. Like the, this is the thing is that like this project is huge Mm -hmm. because they are working to associate every address with a longitude and latitude coordinates so that they can be plotted onto a map yeah right off the bat about 34 percent of bob's entries were deemed unclear by the project this Mm -hmm. was stuff like u.s highway 67 or had descriptive addresses like i mentioned that were like state and maine Mm -hmm. that had to be identified by hand all told after they've gone through everything 12% of the entries are just absolutely unidentifiable. Mm, Interesting. Which is like pretty dang low for tens of thousands of entries. Right. And for people like doing this all kind of by hand, sort of, you know. Yeah. I mean, they have a team, but it's not like, you know, and apparently. Right. But I mean, like even the people sending in entries originally, it's like. Yeah. They were just going off of whatever notes they got probably. Right. And apparently. A complete collection of the Bob Dameron address books exists, I think, at the University of Southern California. And that's it. Hmm. Like there are other places that are like, we have 1965 through like 1980, but we don't have anything beyond that. Hmm. I think Library of Congress has like two. Hmm. So these people are working with the collection at USC to digitize everything. Mm -hmm. The MGG website also includes a page titled Ethics, where Dr. Reagan and Dr. Gonzaga talk about the need to archive this piece of queer history while also being aware that the information could be used to make some of these these historical sites unsafe in the present. Mm -hmm. I think when they started sort of conceiving of this project, it was in the wake of the Pulse shooting. Mm. So they were like, how do we, how do we collect this information? And like, you don't want to give the wrong people a map. Right. And also understand that like, they, like it, it, it's something that needs to be public knowledge. So right. they're like trying to work in good faith. Right. That right. this is, 
that it that it won't be that it will only be used for good. Mm-hmm. Part of why the MGG project is so important is because brick and mortar queer spaces are actually dis- disappearing. Right. The internet and the invention of dating apps means that the queer community doesn't have to operate in the shadows as much as it did in the past. Mm-hmm. Like you don't need to go to a bar and like kind of codedly flirt with somebody. You could literally just get on Grinder. Right. <laughs> you know, additionally, COVID hit queer spaces really hard because mm-hmm. a lot of them were bars who didn't get federal or state assistance during the first wave of COVID shutdowns. Mm-hmm. In the Slate article, the author makes a big push. It was written in like July of 2020, mm-hmm. makes a big push for the government to bail out the bars mm-hmm. uh, for this very reason, because there was frequently community spaces right. for communities that don't have anywhere else to commune. Right. Yeah. And so during COVID, during the shutdowns, a lot of queer spaces closed, like they just, they didn't recover. Yeah. And while yes, queer people have new ways of engaging with other queer people, a digital community will never no, actually not, replace the, an in-person You one. still want like, you still want those spaces to exist because you want that kind of in-person ability to interact yeah. with people. The author of the Slate article had said something about like that they couldn't imagine that they like they couldn't imagine or like a thing that was keeping them going was the idea of getting together to like dance in a queer space Mm -hmm. on the other side of COVID. Right. Whatever that may be. Again, the article was written in like July or August of 2020. So yeah, because if you're just thinking like, oh, well, you don't need those places. You have Grindr now. It's like boiling the whole thing down to like getting laid. And that's not really. And also like a very one-on-one, like a very, like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm sure, I'm sure grinder goes outside of the one-on-one, but it's not like you're like, Hey, I'm hopping on grinder to like, you know, find a cool gig, like a dance party. Right. (laughs) I mean, maybe, I don't know. I'm not on grinder. Sure. So maybe, but you know, there's that. Right. Very little remains today of the places that Dameron charted in those early guides. West Hollywood's gay bars don't date back that far, the ones that are current that are, mm-hmm. you know, open right now. Like I mentioned, Okie Joe's is now a 7-Eleven here in Albuquerque. <laughs> right. That was actually the cool thing though, too, was to, because it lists, you know, anything that had an address, like a Google verifiable address, mm-hmm. the addresses are listed on the map. So you can go down and see that like, there's a restaurant on Central, the, it's, it's a Thai restaurant now, and that used to be a gay bar. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like cool cool stuff like that and you sort of be like wow this you know this was this was happening here Mm -hmm. decades ago but the mgg is taking the responsibility of the project very seriously they understand that even though it's imperfect and it's not encompassing the address book offers a view into one man's queer world you know for like decades Dr. Reagan says in the Slate article, quote, this history deserves to be part of LGBTQ walking tours in local communities. There's all sorts of stories contained in this map that deserve to be told. Um, I'm going to close this out and let you know that Bob Dameron died on June 20th, 1981 of AIDS-related illness. He was cremated and his ashes were scattered to the sea. And afterwards, his friends and loved ones got together in one of his own bars to celebrate his life. I will close with a quote from the Condé Nast article that says, quote, still, Dr. Gonzaba admits viewing the map is a staggering experience. He imagines that a traveler holding Dameron's guide thumbing through its pages would have felt the same. Beyond their practical use, Gonzaga says, and despite their drawbacks, the guides do an interesting job 
of trying to make people feel like they're not alone in the world. And that is the story of Bob Dameron's address book. So you said the address books, I mean, they went up through, it sounds like at least around 2000. Do you know when they kind of stopped altogether? Uh, the article from LA Magazine was written in, I think, 2019. And mm-hmm. at that time, Gina Gatta was like, I think this is going to be our last one. Okay. Like, I think what she meant was our last physical one. So so the, so the address books were going on up until 2019? I think think that's cool that's and she yeah she was she talks about in the article which is very interesting and very googleable if you want to uh look into it some more she talks about how the women's edition was put out of print in either like 2006 or 2016 she's like it was never very popular Mm -hmm. and there just isn't it's the same thing that you are probably seeing with actual book travel guides that it's like well why would i want a travel guide when i can literally yeah, just talk uh, on my phone the, the, i mean i'm kind of glad to hear that in some form it lasted that long just as like a kind of a cultural thing but like mm-hmm. yeah there isn't really the need for it in the same way yeah you know and i think it was something that like i don't know if it quite knew how to like adapt to the times mm-hmm. because probably in like 2019 if you'd gotten you know like a 22 23 year old in there they would have been like let's just digitize it and let's just mm-hmm. put the entire thing up and we'll sell advertising to advertisers right. like now that we don't need now that it doesn't need to be discreet now that it doesn't need to be like in the closet yeah we can do this and it can be it's also a huge i mean think of like Think of cities like New York and San Francisco and LA that have like huge gay communities Mm -hmm. and think about the work that it would take to map every LGBTQ friendly place. Right. And the thing of being like, this is the address. This is the particulars that you need to know about the address. Especially when you have stuff like, you know, tonight is like leather night or like Mm -hmm. they, you know, (laughs) like. And like, I mean, every community I'm just thinking, like, this is a weird comparison, but as a writer, like, I remember back pre-internet days, you used to always go get the writer's guide or the writer's market. Mm-hmm. And it had listings of all the places you would like, you know, here's all the magazines that take horror stories. Here's all the book publishers. Here's all the agents and stuff. Um, Well, that kind of just got killed by the internet because, again, you can just go Google stuff. Yeah. And, like, there's so many Facebook groups that are just, that it's, like, open call Facebook group and people can just post whatever open calls and stuff. Right, right. Um, and in a way, like, I miss the old writer's market because it was, like, so organized and <laughs> now it's just like you're just kind of poking around social media yeah. trying to find stuff yeah but what you lose uh in terms of that organization you kind of gain in terms of like there's not as much gatekeeping and stuff precisely and when you're talking about these guides and him being such like coming from this white cis male perspective mm-hmm. now you have like communities that can create a facebook group for like you know here's for black trans people or right you know, Right, Um, right. You don't need need a guy going around and listing it all. And it is, it's sort of like, you know, pros and cons to both, Mm -hmm. right? Right. And I can see why the value, I can see why it was so valuable in like the 1960s. Though at that time, it would have been necessary. Yeah, it would have been absolutely necessary to know like, this is where I can go and like, not only like enjoy a beer in peace, but like maybe even like, hook up with somebody for the night or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting too, because even like 
the internet in all of its vastness and like, yes, information is literally at your fingertips. Just looking at like the trip that I took to Palm Springs, mm -hmm. you know, in December, trying to find like good restaurants Oh, uh, is like, like you can type in best restaurants in Palm Springs and like. <laughs> yeah, no, I was, I was doing that. I was going through that in Pittsburgh looking for coffee shops. And yeah. Like and like, you don't know if the criteria, like if the person who wrote the list's criteria is going to be the same as yours. Right. You don't know, like, you know, like, are you going to, with, with a lot like of businesses, like paid Yelp ads and stuff, paid Yelp ads. A lot of it is like stuff that is super expensive and super trendy. Mm -hmm. So like, yeah, it's just interesting to think that like at one time you could buy for like you know, two, three, four dollars. You could buy yeah. a guide that was like, here are the, all the places you can go to be safe. Right. And like that, you know, the the advantage of having the gatekeeper there is that, you know, he's gone and done it all. Like he's checked it all out. The the bad side of it is like it's all through his narrow perspective. Yeah. Yeah. So like what a... you sacrifice there, you're gaining with um like the volume of stuff, but then how you sort through it is so much harder now. Yeah. Yeah. Which is even, I mean, even a thing for this with like doing the research on this, right? Like mm -hmm. there's a lot of stuff that comes up if you just Google Bob Dameron's address book, mm -hmm. but like actual information about Bob Dameron is very hard to find. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, that's why like the, the biography section of this was very short because <laughs> it was like, he was sure. born in 1928 and he died in 1981. And in between, he traveled the United States and wrote this address book. And he owned some bars. That's and he owned some bars. Yeah. <laughs> That's sort of it. Yeah. <laughs> well, interesting. I'd, I'd never heard of that. I mean, I've heard of the Green Books, obviously, because of Yes. It. And that I had never heard of before the movie came out. Mm -hmm. um, I'd never heard of this. This is the type of thing that I feel like someone should do a, a movie or a limited series about this story, but you'd have to not do it the way they did that Green Book movie. Like, I think that this would be... I think that this would be interesting to do like something that was sort of inspired by mm -hmm. Bob Dameron's address book. You know what I mean? And it's also interesting to see uh, there's also another project called Queering the Map. Mm. Uh, and that is a map of LGBTQ historic spaces. So that's going to be stuff like mm. Stonewall. That's going to be stuff like Compton's Cafeteria. Right. It's going to be like places where historic queer events took place. Interesting. Yeah. And the 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 crossover and the overlap with both of these maps is, is just very cool. Again, because it just reinforces that like queer people have been here. <laughs> and they have been everywhere. Yeah. And they've been yeah. everywhere and they've been doing a thing. And um, yeah. Yeah. Well, interesting. All right. Well, I guess I'll uh, go ahead and dive into mine. Well, we're going to finish off my story about Kenneth Anger. Now, one thing I realized doing all this research is it's like, like to really do Kenneth Anger's story justice, I would need to do like uh, at least a five part thing. And I'm not going to do that. So okay. this is another like pretty cliff notesy. I'm just capturing sort of one section of his life. Yeah. Um, but this is kind of, you know, last time I kind of took us up through the release of his movie Fireworks, which was his like big sort of coming out. I don't mean that as a pun, but like <laughs> his debut, uh, his film? debut. There we go. This is I'm going to get into like when he was really sort of became when Kenneth Anger became a thing. 
So, okay. so my sources are Wikipedia, as always. As always. DesistFilm.com, uh, an article from the New York Post. Don't generally like to use them as a source, but <laughs> work this uh, time. The New York Post. It's so weird that the New York Post was founded by Alexander Hamilton and is mm-hmm. now just the dirtiest of dirt rags <laughs> really is. like this is the thing when people are like what would the founding fathers think that you're trying to you know like revoke mm-hmm. the second amendment and i'm like what would alexander hamilton think about the fact that you publish absolute dumpster trash <laughs> in his newspaper yeah although i'm i'm sitting here like hemming and hawing by using the new york post i use the times all the time and as we have discovered as we've seen the times wrong. is <laughs> Zay, listen, <laughs> so, sorry, unreliable. <laughs> on, on the believability scale, on the weirdest thing podcast believability scale, the New York Times hovers no higher than a five. Right. I mean, that's that's being generous. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so the New York Post, um, an article from Collider.com, an article from Senses of Cinema, and then an article from The Quietus. Okay. Okay. So, um, like I said, put out fireworks in the late 40s the movie was kind of an immediate sensation as we talked about and it made it all the way over to france where filmmaker jean cocteau who is most known for his version of beauty and the beast Mm -hmm. he saw the movie he wrote a letter to kenneth anger and was like hey Doug, your movie. You ought to come to France. I think they'd like your stuff over here. So that's where we're going to pick up. <laughs> okay. Is in 1950, Kenneth Anger picked up and he moved to France. He initially stayed with some friends who had actually left Hollywood after being blacklisted. So this is kind of a good time to leave the U.S., it sounds like. Blacklisted kind of... for being communists? Yeah, they had worked for trade unions in, in Hollywood. And at the time, having ever worked for a trade union meant you were a communist sympathizer, uh, supposedly, to the McCarthyites. So, yeah. Yeah, so Kenneth Anger was like, fuck that. Went over to France, uh, couch surfed for a while. And then he and Jean Cocteau became friends. And mm-hmm. uh, Cocteau actually let him make a film out of his ballet called The Young Man and Death. I believe that that footage is lost. While there, he was also kept making short films. He made one called Rabbit's Moon. This was about a clown who stares up at the moon where a rabbit lives. And this was based on Japanese mythology. Sorry. Um, yeah. <laughs> That sounds like the most boring movie. <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't solely a clown staring up at the moon. And then there's like a distance. rabbit sitting up there staring back. I mean, I haven't seen the movie, so maybe that's what it was. It's also one of those things where after watching, what is it? Firework? Fireworks? Mm-hmm. I'm like, I also don't put it past it just being a clown staring up yeah. at the moon. We're clown with like a bottle rocket in his pants staring up at the moon um, but this supposedly this movie was based on japanese mythology i really don't know much about it other than supposedly it remained uncompleted until 1970 hmm. um after anger went back to france and he retrieved the footage from the cinematique francaise 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 is it no. f-r-a-n-c-a-i-s a-I-S-E. Mm, okay. I don't uh, think that I don't think the C is hard. Uh, it's probably French size. I'm bad at languages. So this is like a recurring theme throughout Kim Thinker's career. Is he would like start making a movie, would abandon it to start making another movie, or would take the footage from a movie he started making and use it in another movie, but mm-hmm. then go back later, take more of the outtakes and turn that into a, like 
He was just constantly shooting stuff and then putting stuff together in all sorts of ways. Jeez. He was re- he was releasing like 18 versions of films because he would constantly be re-editing things and adding things. And um, so there's with a lot of his movies, it can be like kind of hard to find like the definitive version of a film. Mm-hmm. Around this time when he was in France, he also traveled to Italy for the first time. I believe this is when he first visited the Thelema Abbey, which I talked about, which was in Sicily. Mm -hmm. And while he was in France, he planned to make a film about 16th century Catholic cardinal and supposed like sexual deviant and occultist, Epilato II d'Este. And I read like the Wikipedia page on this Epilato II d'Este, and it's just like, yes, he was a cardinal and he was a philanthropist, blah, blah, blah. But apparently, like Kenneth Anger had some inside knowledge that he was some sort of deviant. We're going to get there when we get to Hollywood Babylon as far as like how much we can trust anything that (laughs) Kenneth Anger had to say about anybody. But here's his quote about. <laughs> this Ippolato to the essay says the essay was a sexual pervert. There are very few things I call sexual perversion, but he liked to fuck goats, and that is technically a perversion. Okay. Allegedly. I could not confirm that anywhere else. <laughs> I did Jesus. actually look to see if there were any other stories about this guy that I didn't find. Sorry, real fast sidebar. Did you hear mm-hmm. the thing about that? What was it? Is it a city councilman? Mm. Or whatever that was found in like a park bathroom, like screwing his dog. No. Yeah. And I don't know what happened. I don't know if it was like he got caught on camera or if he got busted, but he was like, I, I'm really stressed out. I'm really stressed out. You don't understand. Like I do it to relax and blah, blah. And everybody is like, a what? <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. just going to take and a I- wild guess that he's a Trumper, but I mean, allegedly. I'll look it up. It was, (laughs) it's, it's one of those things where I'm just like, Mm, that poor dog. You can literally hire sex workers for this. Like, there is so much wrong with this story. I'll find it and I'll send you the article. Yeah. Total sidebar, but one I'm very interested in. Well, supposedly, according to Kenneth Anger, this cardinal liked to fuck goats. And he also apparently had a pea fetish. So if you watch this movie that he was shooting, that um, it was supposed to be four scenes, but he ultimately only shot one scene and released it as a film called Ile d'Artifice. And it's a bunch of women in like 18th century dresses walking around this garden with a bunch of fountains. Okay. And it just really focuses a lot on the fountains. And this is supposedly because this cardinal also was like into having girls pee on him. Again. Okay. Allegedly. Listen, listen <laughs> we're not going to get into the bestiality because that is just wrong. But I feel like old anger is really doing some kink shaming with this mm, well but the thing is i think according to um if you were to ask kenneth anger i'd be like oh, i'm not shaming him it's just what he was into and i found it interesting because i mean kenneth anger was into lots of stuff himself well, so okay okay all right and if you watch the movie i mean it's like scored with this like soaring kind of like classic i think it's vivaldi on the soundtrack mm. And it's just like beautiful women and the fountains with pee. Like, I wouldn't say it's like particularly judgmental. But I mean, this quote about like him liking to fuck goats. I mean, I think for me, it's the sort of like inclusion of bestiality, which is a perversion. Like, mm-hmm. let's let's be clear here. And, and then, then like, throwing you know, in the, the urination. Yeah, that sort of is like they're like, well, they kind I, of are like I mean, not too far apart. Or, I don't know. I'm going to get to it when we get to Hollywood Babylon, but one thing that's very clear about Kenneth Anger is he had, he was really just fascinated by salaciousness Mm. and was not terribly concerned with the truth. Great. Okay. 
there you go. <laughs> awesome. So yeah, he made this this short film. It's one scene called "You the Artifice" about the supposedly at least inspired by this cardinal. And then his mother died back in the U.S. So he returned to the U.S. Mm. He was there to like help, kind of like settle her estate and all this stuff. But while he was there, he kind of reimmersed himself into L.A.'s counterculture scene and into its art scene, and he became friends. And for a short time, a collaborator with an experimental filmmaker, a guy named Stan Brackage. Um, now, Stan Brackage is famous for, as his art evolved over time, if you watch early Brackage films, he's actually filming subjects and, you know, editing and kind of in a traditional way. Over time, he was literally doing things just like, it was like Jackson Pollock, but on film. He was painting the film strips mm. and scratching the emulsion and just running it through a projector and it was just this kind of visual experience okay. um, there was no representation no subject that he was filming anything and Brackett just considered one of the like the great experimental filmmakers of all time i personally don't really get it i mean i've seen stan Brackett films and mm. i'm kind of like it's pretty but that's how i feel about a lot of things like that mm. um well he and can think of they became friends uh, they worked together for a while, and then they had a dramatic falling out in the 1970s over a series of lectures and essays that Brackage had wanted to give on, like, Kenneth Anger and his work. And he had written to Kenneth Anger, was like, I would like to do this. And they started going back and forth. And you can actually read the letters at desistfilm.com. Okay. They are bonkers. Like, just the way, like, the escalation of you know, it starts off with like Brackage being like I would like to do these essays and then kind of think a response with this like think about like I'm just like to live in the here and now I don't like to look back on the past and, blah, blah, blah. and then it just like devolves into like name calling and like, <laughs> like I could have done the entire episode on that breakdown of that relationship because that's wow. a real rabbit hole if you have any interest in either of these people I'll post the link in the show notes but I'm not going to go anywhere into it because it is but it is like if you want just get a sense of like two bonkers cuckoo bananas like experimental filmmakers mm. going at each other there you go there so, you go <laughs> but you know they met they initially met in the 1950s they became friends also around this time a couple of anger's friends someone named renata drooks and another person named paul matheson uh they held a costume party the theme was quote come as your madness and anger attended dressed in drag dressed specifically as the greek goddess hecate mm-hmm. a nine and again i cannot pronounce these names is it a nice or a nine then the she's famous writer was if, the muse yep, for no Henry i know Miller. who like, know exactly who you're talking about and if you had not asked me i probably would have been able to say her name <laughs> <laughs> you know it's one of those things where it's like the yeah. second you're like is it this or this my brain was like her yeah yeah, yeah did a hard reset. Yeah, that's... Yep, okay. Her. We all know who she is. Well, she was also at this party. Well, Inger was, like, very inspired by this party and all the different costumes that people were wearing. And so he asked all the people there, like, hey, will you be in this, like, movie of mine? And so he basically had assembled them and himself all dressed in their costumes, and he made this movie called The Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome. Uh, it's a 38-minute surrealist work. He released it in 1954, it's got all of his like occultist themes from Aleister Crowley. It's got a lot from Greek mythology. I believe Anger, I, it's been a while since I've seen that. I believe Anger is in it in drag. Mm. It was his 
most explicitly a cultist film at this point because like if you watch um fireworks there's like crowley themes in it but there's not a lot of like very explicit this is occult imagery right but by the time you get to inauguration of the pleasure dome he is like really being blatant with it the way the movie was shot is it was intended to be projected on three different screens simultaneously and it was actually shown this way at the brussels world fair uh, but later on, he re-edited the film and actually layered the different scenes on top of each other. So they're all just kind of, sw- that. I think that's the version I saw. They're just kind of swimming around on top of each other. Mm-hmm. That version, or the final version of the film, was shown at the Max Linder Theater in Paris in 2015. And this is an inauguration of the Pleasure Dome. is one of those movies that he like kept tinkering with and re-editing and you know stuff over the years. I've seen some version of it mm-hmm. it's pretty wild and it's very psychedelic and it's mm. like beautifully shot it's like super colorful and like it's very weird very surreal the following year 1955 he if you remember he and alfred kinsey had become friends after he made fireworks yep so it was in 1955 that he and kinsey then went back to sicily to to view the Thelema Abbey. Um, I told that story in the last episode. This is when the locals were putting sacrificed cats on his doorstep to try to drive him away. Yeah. But while he was there, he actually made a documentary about the Abbey that was later shown on the British TV series Omnibus. Unfortunately, that documentary is now lost. All Mm. the footage is gone. Kinsey died the next year. And sounds like Kenneth Inger was pretty broken up about that yeah he ended up returning to paris and he was described at the time as being quote extremely remote and lonely and it was there while he was in paris that he wrote the first volume of hollywood babylon Uh, Um, (laughs) so let's get into hollywood babylon hollywood babylon now what do you know i know you know some about it so what do you know about it my understanding is that hollywood babylon was basically this sort of and i don't know that it was like marketed this way but it was sort of like this um like expose on like mm-hmm. how like deranged and like you know like deviant hollywood was and all mm-hmm. of these like super salacious scandals that had you know were were just intrinsically part of the makeup of hollywood mm-hmm. that it was that it was i mean the babylon being in the title was like definitely not an accident Right, exactly. And what I would say, back to what you were saying about like the king shaming, what I would think about anger, and I didn't read this anywhere, is I think what he would have reacted to probably both with that cardinal and with the Hollywood people mm-hmm. is what he would have perceived as like the hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. Because you got to keep in mind that this is like mid to late 50s Hollywood. Right. We're a couple decades past the Fatty Arbuckle scandal. We're deep in Hayes Code, we're right? We're deep in the Hayes Code. And the Hollywood studios just kept like the the public relations aspect of the Hollywood studios was just like controlled stories with like an iron fist. The only stories that they would allow to be released about any of their stars or any of their celebrities were very family friendly, very sanitized, very idealized. And here comes Kenneth Inger just like with a with a pen to pop that. Right. And also to say that what we also have in Hollywood, which is something that like, I think we've both independently talked about in various stories Mm -hmm. is you have the explosion of an industry that is creating the, the new rich of the country. Mm -hmm. Right. So you have kids that grew up as like the sons and daughters of like 
Idaho potato farmers and they, and they suddenly have there. and they have more money than they know what to do with. And, well, and they're and, also they're being presented almost in this like godlike. Right, right, right. Like they're reaching like, you know, as as close as we can get to in this country as like royal status. Mm-hmm. And they are being offered. I mean, Anything and everything that they desire. And in addition to that, there is absolutely a culture of like harassment and sexual assault and eating mm-hmm. disorders and racism and anti-Semitism right. and like, which is just a, a recipe for a lot of bad shit to happen in the shadows. And see, that's the thing to keep in mind about Hollywood Babylon is that he was wrong. And I would say flagrantly, gloriously unapologetically wrong about Mm. a lot of the things in the book but he was kind of right about the hypocrisy Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and about puncturing that balloon or at least you know sort of showing that like hey these people because you know if you think about kind of going along with what you were just saying we don't have nobility in this country yeah like in in the classic sense that you do and um like you know the uk or whatever right right so the closest we get is celebrities right and, and the closest previous, we get is like the kennedys and, and right and previous stars. to previous to hollywood the closest that we got to it was old money mm-hmm. and, and this is all new a, money right and it's all new money and old money had a very strict code of behavior mm-hmm. that you did things this way you handled yourself like this and that was the way it went. This is what respectable people did. And then you got Hollywood and it was like, <laughs> everything's a fucking party. Let's do blow. Like, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and this has been a thing about Hollywood, a concern about Hollywood from the beginning. I mean, we had the Fatty Arbuckle scandal. We had the the early movies, movies like Scarface that led to the introduction of the Hayes Code. Mm. And by this time in the mid-1950s, Hollywood studios were trying to package celebrities like old money like Mm. you know saying these are the glamorous people that they're they're above us they're you know these these are our betters and so they're expected to adhere to this like yeah they're supposed to be beyond reproach beyond reproach as we know this was not the truth of hollywood but then you get a fucking chaos artist like (laughs) kenneth anger coming in yeah and and like i said he was right about the broad strokes of hollywood but in terms of the specific stories he was telling, was flagrantly wrong. So so the way it started, the way Hollywood Babylon started, is he he was in Paris, Alfred Kinsey had died, I think he was going through like sort of a creatively fallow period. Mm. He, it sounds like he was very depressed, he was very lonely. And for money, he just started writing gossip items for French magazines. Okay. Some of the gossip bits were like rumors that he was picking up from his like LA social circle, because even though he was part of this la underground there was a lot of overlap between the underground and the like the hollywood scene mm-hmm. but he's hearing all these things third fourth fifth hand and so here's a quote from let's see if I, ooh, where did i put the quote uh, i'll get back to it because um, i don't know where i put the quote in the wrong place nope. <laughs> but um you know so he's he's hearing all these things third fourth fifth hand you know, so the stories are just kind of growing and becoming more and more Baroque. And then he just starts also just making shit up. Mm. So if you look at Hollywood Babylon, like there are some true to true-ish stories, 
Like he talks about the fatty arbuckle scandal, things like that. But I think his version of it is much more salacious than what actually happened. There's stories about Charlie Chaplin, Lupe Velez, Rudolph Valentino, Mary Astor, Francis Farmer, Gene Harlow, Judy Garland, Marilyn Monroe, Lana Turner, on and on and on and on and on. And it was really hard to determine what was true, what was like maybe sort of partly true, and what was wildly wrong. (laughs) so like among some of the rumors he'd heard is he'd heard that rudolph valentino was a sexual submissive who liked dominatrixes so (laughs) again good for him well and i would say like again i would if you were to ask him to think or i would i would think he would say yeah good for him except he was like presenting this other image he claimed that walt disney was an opioid addict and the disney animators had modeled the quote perpetually stoned goofy after him that seems unlikely to me (laughs) although it is hilarious (laughs) (laughs) now here are some of the more egregious falsehoods and these are things that are like i'm just gonna say it right now these are things that have been debunked i'm not repeating them to perpetuate the myth of these things i'm here to say Mm -hmm. kind of thing you're made this shit up right so among them is clara bow apparently had sex with the entire usc football team including a young john wayne Again, good for her. Fucking get it. (laughs) She was a boss. Uh Good for her. Supposedly, um, Margot Robbie's character in the new movie Babylon, which I have not watched, is based on that story. Uh, I, I guess Babylon is sort of like loosely inspired by Hollywood Babylon. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I've not seen the movie. I've not heard good things about it. I really wanted it to be better. I know. I mean, it was so, it was something so right up my alley. Mm -hmm. I think we've absolutely mentioned it on this podcast. It was what's his name? Damien Chazelle, who did Whiplash, which we've done. Who did Whiplash. And I will say that the movie is beautiful. Mm -hmm. Like it is, it is visually a very stunning movie. But narratively, I think it's a bit of a mess. Well, I mean, he based it on Hollywood Babylon, so, yeah. Um, Among the other stories, Lupe Velez, or Velez, I think. uh, Yeah, can I just do one quick mm -hmm. pronunciation adjustment? It's Lupe, and the the whole thing about it being, her name being pronounced Lupe was done to add to, like, she's fucking crazy. Okay, good good correction. So Lupe Velez. Thank you. Was found mm-hmm. drowned in her own vomit with her head in the toilet after taking 500 pills. Not true. Yeah. She's, uh, I mean, she died young, but she's found dead in her bed. You know, yeah. it's not. Yeah. Was there something about a dildo in her story? Is not, that that's else? someone else I'm getting there. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank uh, you. Thank silent you. film actress Marie Prevost was found partially eaten by her own dachshund after she died in her Hollywood apartment. Again, I mean. I'm going to have to like screenshot your shocked face there. Let me just remind you, not true. Didn't happen. (laughs) Awful. Okay. Okay. Here's the dildo. Murdered silent film star Ramon Navarro was found. And he was actually murdered. I mean, I think that's true. But he was found Mm. with a sex toy, i.e. dildo, modeled Mm. after Rudolph Valentino's cock and apparently signed by Rudolph Valentino and gifted to Ramon Navarro. He was found with this uh, giant dildo shoved into his mouth. Pretty sure that didn't happen. Uh, Lillian Gish and her younger sister Dorothy were actually incestuous lovers. Mm. Gross. And then most famously, of course, and this was actually from the 1970s reissue of Hollywood Babylon, 
He claimed that actress Jane Mansfield was decapitated in her fatal 1967 car accident. That is one of those myths that has lived on to this day. I was I was literally just about to go. She wasn't. Nope. Um, so wow. here's the story. To add verisimilitude to his stories, he would mm-hmm. use photos. He would put photos in with the stories, and a lot of them were like doctored or out of context. So for the Jane Mansfield decapitation story, he included a photo of the crash scene with a pile of blonde hair on the ground in front of it. It was actually one of her wigs that was in the car. Mm. And Mariska Hargitay was in the car, wasn't she? I believe she? so. And of course, and I think she was. For those who don't know, Mariska Hargitay from Law and Order SVU is Jane Mansfield's daughter. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think she was in the car. She would have been like very young. And yeah, it's, yeah. And there's also, I've wanted to do the Jane Mansfield story because like there's all sorts of stuff about Jane Mansfield, like becoming a member of the Church of Satan and stuff. But a lot of it is Jane really was, hard to verify. And Jane Mansfield was a very, very interesting oh, yeah. character because she absolutely has this uh it's famously her right in the picture with her and sophia loren mm-hmm. where sophia loren is like giving her the side eye because mm-hmm. jane mansfield's boobs are like about to pour out of her dress yeah and it was if i'm not mistaken it was a very calculated public persona that she had crafted yeah well and there's all sorts of stories that jane mansfield was actually like a member of Mensa, like she was a genius. She's very smart. Stuff. Yeah. But she was very like it, it they created this mm-hmm. image for her and she was like, okay, then we're going to, we're going to go like full yeah. hog. With and it. then of course she lost control of that image when she died and Kenneth Anger got a hold of it. But yeah, there's all sorts of stories that she had joined. Now I, I should do an aside about like Jane Mansfield was a Satanist. I mean, this was the sixties. A lot of people were joining the Church of Satan or were like dabbling with it. The Rolling Stones were, Sammy Davis Jr. was. Right. It was just counterculture. They weren't like actual Satan. Like the Church of Satan is not, I mean, I've I've talked about it before, but it's, they don't even really literally believe in Satan. It's, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, I, that's funny. Cause I think I had looked into a Jane Mansfield story as well and had done a lot of like research on her and she's just a fascinating character. Yeah. yeah she is interesting. And look, I mean, I've said it before. I'll say it again. I was for about like 20 minutes, a Satanist <laughs> in college. And this is because I read Anton LaVey's satanic Bible and like, I can just verify it. Like it's, it's just a bunch of bullshit. It's dime star existentialism packaged around this kind of spooky Satan kind of image, right. you know, like Thelema, what um, Kavanga was into is much more like a religion. Like, right. like there's an actual, like a real legit set of beliefs. I mean, yeah. So just whenever you hear the like, Jane Mansfield was a Satanist, like take up the grain of salt. But yeah. Uh, so like, yeah. So like I said, he included all sorts of like kind of out of context photos. Another one, this one's pretty gross. He tried to claim that Carmen Miranda was a quote, oversexed minx. I think that quote's actually like from the Wikipedia article. And so, and was saying she was sleeping with all her co-stars. It's pretty gross because this is like telling stories about a woman of color this way. Like, Yeah. I mean, and that's kind of the thing is that there is a lot of like between Lupe Velez, Roman Navarro, Carmen Miranda, like there's a lot of pretty gross stuff mm. aimed at brown folks i mean to be fair to kenneth Inger, he was real shitty to everybody yeah but i don't know that that's like a great defense <laughs> yeah right um yeah um so in order to portray carmen miranda as an oversex me he 
oversexed minx. He used a cannon shot of her being lifted in the air by her scene partner, Cesar Romero. Um, the photo was taken, I don't know how he got a hold of this photo, but it was taken while they were rehearsing the 1942 film Springtime in the Rockies. She happened to not be wearing panties under her skirt. And so this like led credibility to his like, she was fucking everybody kind mm. of claims. He would also like talk about stars having all these drug and alcohol problems. And then he would just find the most unflattering photo of them that he could one particularly mean one was an unflattering photo of Judy Garland, and the caption was just Judy, old, old, old. Ugh. So talk about somebody who got like booked by Hollywood. Mm, yeah. Uh, like they, For like sure. Hollywood absolutely ruined Judy Garland. We ought to do Judy Garland. Hers is such yeah. a sad story, though. It is a really fucking sad story. Well, I just want to say, like, if you want more about the debunking of Hollywood Babylon, you mentioned this to me. I listened to some of it. I didn't really use it as a source, but mm-hmm. but it is good. Uh, the you Must Remember This podcast uh, by Karina Longworth. She did a whole season basically yeah. debunking Hollywood Babylon. Yeah, she kind of goes through it like, I don't think it's like chapter by chapter, but she, she and she does a good thing of being like, this is what was going on with him at the time. This is what was like the actual mm. very like the, was it Lupe? Velez, who I think it was like, she actually like had like something like happened to her mm-hmm. that ended up because I think it was something that they found like her stomach exploded or so, it was something. Yeah, I don't think it was suicide. Like it was it was something. I mean, yeah. But in addition to that, she was also uh, she had an affair with a pretty big celebrity and he did kind of like toss her aside and she was pretty like busted up about that. Mm-hmm. So it goes into the actual like real stories of these people yeah and then how anger twisted them to become more salacious right um here's what Karina. this was the quote i was looking for that i couldn't ah. find here's uh-huh. what Karina longworth said about hollywood bamon she says it really stems from the community that kenneth anger came out of in hollywood of gay men and queer people sharing stories like this game of telephone so every time the story gets told it gets embellished a little bit and exaggerated a little bit more and that's true to a point but and look, I'm 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 a Kenneth Anger fan in terms of his filmmaking, mm-hmm. and I'm sort of fascinated by him as a, like a persona. Mm-hmm. Hollywood Babylon's real hard to defend. Yeah, and I'm not even really going to try because the thing is, I've read parts of it. It's fucking mean. Like yeah. it's mean spirited. Yeah, and I think you can kind of get the sense, at least with this first version, that he was like not in a good place when he was putting it together. And I think there was an element of like really lashing out. Yeah, and really and I, like kind of jealousy of these people who are living this life. You know? Yeah, and I feel like that is ultimately the viewpoint that Karina Longworth takes in it is that she is like this is nothing in this should be taken as no. as fact like it was really damaging stuff to people who are already like very damaged by the hollywood mm-hmm. system that's the thing is like the true stories that are getting twisted are, are sort of just as interesting and sometimes just as yeah. tragic and sometimes pretty salacious but yeah the where he took things was i mean it's just it's nasty it's like there's a yeah. real nastiness to it and he was unapologetic about Hollywood Babylon his entire life. Which is also just interesting because it's like, there were those salacious stories out there. Like, I don't know why you didn't tell those. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, I think a lot of stuff, there was probably a lot of stuff that we know now as like documented fact was probably rumor. So he's like picking from her and I think he would occasionally stumble on a true story. Mm. Because I think Hollywood Babylon has the Lana Turner murdering her 
boyfriend gangster boyfriend story in it mm-hmm. which is true and actually mm-hmm. I, that's that's another one we got to do on here at some point mm-hmm. it's a really interesting story but he was yeah he was just you know mix of like rumor mongering and then like just blatant making stuff up mm-hmm. so here's a quote from the collider article it says factual or not the stories in Hollywood Babylon stripped the veneer away, and movie fans around the globe gobbled up the tales like a delicious dessert after a hearty meal. For the first time, people no longer looked at their favorite celebrities as exalted beings floating above them. Anger's book brought the stars down from the heavens and made them, quote, real to the masses. In some cases, Anger's stories were so sleazy, they made readers feel superior to their once revered idols. And that was something so powerful, it forever altered audiences' perceptions of the personalities they saw on the silver screen. Mm-hmm. The golden age era of the untouchable, quote, movie star began to crumble, and Anger was only too willing to continue bringing in the wrecking ball. And then this is from a psychotherapist uh, named Britt Frank, just talking about like our draw towards these kind of stories. And I don't, Britt Frank, I don't know if this is man, woman, non-binary, so I'll say Mm. they. Um, But they say, quote, celebrity gossip is a safe way to snack on schadenfreude. It feels a lot less shameful to admit we enjoy watching celebrity misfortunes than to admit we enjoy watching the misfortunes of family and friends. Mm. so you can kind of see like what he was doing with hollywood babylon is sort of like setting the stage for like you know stories that would come along later that have become urban legends that we all have kind of accepted as truth Mm -hmm. uh one big one is the cass elliott choking on a ham sandwich Mm -hmm. um she sure did not choke to death on a ham sandwich she did not richard Gere using a gerbil as a sex toy god the pervasiveness oh man that was that one I mean, to the point where I believed it as a kid, like I thought it was confirmed. I, like I figured he did a 2020 interview about it or something. <laughs> like <laughs> I remember talking to someone <laughs> about this when I was like whatever age I was when that story came out. And they were like, no, it happened. And I was mm-hmm. like, why? I and mean, they were like, because he's like into gay stuff and i was like okay how and they were like how is that gay stuff by gay stuff and i was like that doesn't make any (laughs) sense to me how you get a gerbil up there yeah and they were like he did amelia i heard it and i was like i don't think that that's real and then i I just i just i think accepted it as truth Well, and I was just one of those things where I was like, do you think that your intestine is just like a tube slide? Like, do you think that it's just like open? (laughs) It makes no fucking sense when you actually. Yeah, because people were like, no, it got like up there. And I was like, how? And they were like, I was like, what the? If a gerbil gets up your ass, it's going to start like eating things you don't want it to eat. Let's just say like hot take, don't stick a gerbil up your ass. Also, hot take, Richard Gere did not stick a dribble up his ass. Also, hot take, there is a hilarious account on Instagram that's an EMT that'll show people, like, it, he, he stitches together, so I think he's probably actually on TikTok, but I've seen this stuff on Instagram, mm-hmm. where he stitches together people finding, somebody finds, like, a I think what they call a shark egg on the beach, and it's this, like, sort of, you know, kind of tear-shaped thing oh, yeah. that has, like, a around it mm-hmm. and it'll just be the person being like look at this look what i found and then it cuts to the guy who i said like i said is an emt and he just goes <laughs> he just like beckons the viewer closer and just like wags his finger at them and goes no and it's just like somebody with like a giant cucumber and he's like 
No, don't do it. That stupid <laughs> light that you could stick on that you would like pull the, it looked mm-hmm. like a penis. Like you would pull the foreskin back on it. That was another one that he was like, no, no. Like it's just his Bad public idea. service announcement. is just being like, don't put that in you. And don't I put mean, that anywhere. I think that's good advice about most things. And look, this is not me king shaming. I have nothing against people wanting to put things safely up their ass for whatever reason, but like most things are not most things in the world are just not really good things to put up. Here's what you need to know here. This is, this is what I should have said in the, any advice for listeners (laughs) Two two pieces of advice. The first one is no base without a trace, meaning that Mm -hmm. anything that you want to stick up your butt, anything you want to stick anywhere has to have a base it has to have it's just gonna get in there and then you're gonna have to go to the emergency room Mm -hmm. and say that you stuck you know whatever the hell up there so i mean you're not gonna have a story that you can tell no there's anything other than you stuck it up there is a plethora of things that you can order online you can visit uh, mm-hmm. If you're here in Albuquerque, you can visit Self-Serve. They are a wonderful mm-hmm. resource for all sorts of, you know, kinky sex stuff. So no base without a trace. That's the first piece. And then my second piece is <laughs> Skinner Grin. Those are the two. <laughs> and if you don't know what that means, uh, that means if you're going to send naked pictures of yourself, the picture, if you're going to send pictures of yourself to somebody, they either have skin or a grin, never both. Mm-hmm. Don't put your face in naked pictures. Yep. I don't want to see your face anyways. Isn't addendum to the putting stuff up your ass uh, advice? I would say like, just keep in mind, like lube is pretty cheap and it's your friend. And I mean, again, like just find a reputable sex shop. Like Mm -hmm. you, which is people who can help you. Yeah. This is not, I mean, this is not a a paid advertisement for (laughs) uh, self-serve here in Albuquerque, but it really is a wonderful shop. It's super Mm -hmm. open and progressive um, and they don't care. And they have all of the information about all of the things. Just find yourself a good one. You know, don't go see the board guy who's working at the hustler store. No, he won't know. He He doesn't. And he doesn't care. It's like (laughs) going to ask the person at Best Buy to help you like pick the best set of headphones. Like this is someone getting minimum wage. He doesn't know. He's just going to point. They're just going to point to like what's first on the fucking shelf. Like, yeah, go talk to someone who knows. Go talk to somebody who knows. Right. And explore your body, this pride. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Have fun. Just be safe. Okay, back to Hollywood Babylon. Back to Hollywood Babylon. Um, So yeah, so you can see this as like sort of setting the table for those types of stories. It also kind of sets the table for like the rise of like National Enquirer. And now we have TMZ and things like Mm. that. Now, it should be noted that uh, Hollywood Babylon was initially... um, banned in the u.s what year did it come out 59 wow Um, okay and that was just because of like the risk of lawsuits basically so it was initially released by a french publisher named jean-jacques palver okay and then an incomplete pirated version uh of the book was published in the u.s in 1965 it was wrapped in brown paper and sold from the top shelf um Mm -hmm. and then it was pulled from circulation 10 days later It wouldn't officially be released in the U.S. until 1974 when he put out his updated version. This included the Jane Mansfield story. As soon as he put it out, actress Gloria Swanson filed a lawsuit against him. His response was he sent her a foot-long sugar-filled coffin with Here Lies Gloria painted on the lid. 
So again, not apologetic at all. In fact, in 1984, he released Hollywood Babylon 2, and then he was supposedly working on a volume three, but he died before it was ever released. So, and like I said, he just died just a couple months ago. Okay, so that's the bad side of Kenneth Anger. I think we can agree. I I do not endorse Hollywood Babylon. Let's get back to the stuff about him I like. So let's talk about sort of his, what I think is his best movie, and then we'll kind of leave it there. In 1961, he returned to the U.S. He again moved in with Marjorie Cameron. Um, If you remember from last week, she was the wife of Jack Parsons, who was the occultist slash rocket scientist. Mm -hmm. And that's when he started working on his movie Scorpio Rising, which was a film about the biker subculture. And this is, I think, I'm a big fan also of Lucifer Rising, but Scorpio Rising is, I think, his best movie. So not long after moving back, he moved out to New York City. Um, now, I'm not sure. I think Marjorie Cameron might have been living in New York City at the time, so he was living with her. And he started going down to Coney Island, where he became friendly with this like group of bikers. And we're talking like 1960s bikers, like Marlon mm-hmm. Brando bikers, you know? Right. And there are all these bikers that would hang out at Coney Island on the weekends, and he befriended them by asking, essentially, if he could take photos of their motorcycles. He, in particular, became friends with a guy named Richard McCauley. Uh, he also w- went by the name Bruce Byron, and he ended up casting... Uh, macaulay in scorpio rising so what the movie is essentially it's it's just shows richard macaulay and his biker friends like messing around in new york city over the course of about three months um it was filming them over the course of about three months and then getting up to all sorts of mischief like including desecrating an abandoned church mm. macaulay was known to his friends as scorpio that was his uh like biker nickname and so he became the quote scorpio of the title anger mixed the footage of the bikers with other visuals like nazi iconography nudity clips of jesus christ and this was taken from a religious film called the living bible last journey to jerusalem that was actually owned by the lutheran church um, I'll get back to that. <laughs> and he scored the film with 1960s pop songs, including Bobby Vinton's Blue Velvet, Little Peggy March's I Will Follow Him. I think My Boyfriend's Back might also be one of the songs mm-hmm. he used. So like mm-hmm. a lot of like girl groups and you know things mm-hmm. like that. So the movie is structured in four parts. Uh, the first part is called Boys and Bolts, and it just shows the men working on their motorcycles. Inger would later talk about like the customized motorcycles as, quote, American mechanical folk art. And then this is from the Senses of Cinema uh, article. It says, from the title of the film, printed in silver, studding on the back of a black leather jacket to tight blue jeans and tucked in white t-shirts, the male bodies, like the images of the bikes, are shown in lingering fetishistic close-ups, particularly as they dress and groan. This focus goes beyond attention to just the physicality of the body. It extends to the features that adorn it. Zippers, snaps, belts, chains, dark sunglasses, and cigarettes dangling from mouths. Even in one case, cigarettes holstered by dark sunglasses. The men are vain and very deliberate. Everything is carefully arranged and, like their bikes, carefully constructed. Mm. Um, The second part of the movie is called Image Maker. And this is where he brings in the character of Scorpio. As the bikers prepare to go out, uh, he starts cutting between shots of Scorpio and Jesus and taken from this Lutheran film. Mm -hmm. Uh, The third part is called Valpurgis Party. It shows a, quote, biker Sabbath. So the bikers are getting up to this kind of orgiastic, no good kind of behavior. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They strip each other. They simulate sodomy. They're mooning each other, spanking each other on the ass. They cover one guy's junk and mustard. 
this was supposedly a biker initiation ceremony. Okay. And then the last section is called Rebel Rouser. Scorpio holds a destructive ceremony. This intercuts images of Jesus and Hitler. And then at the end, a biker crashes. There's like a race. There's a scene of bikers racing. One of the bikers crashes. And the final shot shows the words, Blessed, Blessed Oblivion tattooed on his arm. So like most of his films, it utilizes a lot of occult and philemic symbolism. It also explores links between biker subculture, Nazism, and like Nazi fetishization, mm. and then and homosexuality. And he juxtaposes all of this with Christian iconography. Again, keep in mind this is 1961, so this mm. would have been pretty controversial confrontational at the time mm-hmm. it also really dives into like the pop culture worship of quote rebel icons specifically james dean and marlon brando and macaulay in particular was like he worshipped james dean and marlon brando and his apartment was covered in posters of the two actors and they shot some of scenes in his apartment and while they were shooting the scenes actually the movie the wild one which stars marlon brando uh, came on the TV, so Anger then filmed part of the movie on, as it was being shown on the TV. So this is from the Senses of Cinema article. It says, uh, Anger has explained that the zodiac sign of the Scorpio rules sex organs and machinery. So the title of the film and its sexual and mechanical content is fitting and significant. According to astrological interpretation, Scorpio ascendant individuals also demand attention. They are intimidating with a determined, naturally powerful presence that provokes respect and fear. Mm. So after shooting the movie, he moved back to L.A. to edit the film. And once there, he found on his doorstep a package containing a 16 millimeter film. This was a print of the Living Bible. It had been sent to him by mistake. It was He lived close to a, a Lutheran church. And, that, and the movie was actually made by the Lutheran church, sent to them to be shown in their Sunday school classes. Um, but Kenneth took the film and wow. cut it into Scorpio Rising. <laughs> what, like a weird little bit of like serendipity? Yeah, strange serendipity. Yeah. yeah. So the final movie is 28 minutes long. Uh, it premiered on October 29th, 1963, at the Gramercy Arts Theater in New York City as part of the Nock Le Zoot Experimental Film Festival. And then it was shown later at the West German International Short Film Festival in 1964. And in New York, it was like a sensation. Uh, it started showing regularly at the Bleecker Street Cinema in the, in the Greenwich Village. It was part of a double bill with the movie The Brig by Jonas Mikas. It was so. It became so well known uh, with like the beatnicky kind of set of New York that the theater, whenever they would show Scorpio Rising, the theater would have lines around the block. And Macaulay, who played Scorpio, would actually often come to the screenings on his Harley and like take pictures with everybody. Awesome. <laughs> it became the most widely distributed movie in the experimental film underground. And it is regularly cited as being the thing that kind of ignited like the fad for leather gear and motorcycles as parts of like gay subculture. So it sort of helped create like the leather boy kind of thing Mm. so if you remember my rob halford story Mm -hmm. um we have kenneth anger to thank for the image of judas priest Mm. it's also seen as like a big influence on the development of music videos a lot of people like try to read a lot of like intellectual meaning into a lot of the imagery and particularly like the symbolism the use of homoerotic imagery and nazi iconography you know Mm. kind of side by side but the fact is it was actually like less constructed than many of his later films it was less like planned out 
than a lot of Ingers films. He himself saw it as like sort of a documentary about these bikers. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's clear that he had manipulated the images to kind of create his own meaning out of them. For example, the homoeroticism of the film is very much that's anger. That's not necessarily the bikers. Themselves. Right. So there's a quote from Senses of Cinema. It says, The orgiastic gathering near the end of the film, actually a Halloween party, expresses an exhibitionist and suggestive homosexual revelry, still intercut with Christ. But this is where visual deception comes in. The straight men had their girlfriends just off camera, apparently not wanting them to be filmed. So like I said, it was a big sensation in New York, but when it premiered in L.A., it was immediately denounced and protested for being obscene. Now, the critics in L.A. kind of loved the film, but Mm -hmm. pretty much, I think at its very first screening, at its premiere at the Cinema Theater on March 7th, 1964, the police were called and they actually arrested the theater manager, Michael Getz, for obscenity. Um, and then canceled the rest of the film's run. Getz was put on trial for screening the film. The prosecutor, a guy named Warren Wolf, said that the movie's gay content was, quote, a depiction of a certain degenerate activity, which made it obscene. If you remember last week's story about fireworks and the obscenity trial after that, it very much mirrors that. Wolf also focused on the fact that apparently you can see a few frames of a man's penis in the film this is i haven't watched it in a while but i think it's in the mustard smearing scene Mm, mm -hmm. the judge ruled for the prosecution gets was convicted but again like in the earlier story that i talked about last time it was later overturned on appeal so this is what kenneth inger had to say about that he said when scorpio rising was we've forgotten in a sense that it was a groundbreaker legally the case had to go to the california supreme court to be freed and then it became like a landmark case of redeeming social merit That was the phrase that was used to justify that it wasn't pornography. And indeed, there's nothing pornographic about it. Somebody had to break the ice and have that kind of case at the time to establish the freedom because before then, the police would just seize anything they wanted to. What I was doing on the West Coast, Jack Smith was doing on the East Coast with Flaming Creatures. The two films happened at about the same time. So just take a guess who it was that actually called the police and reported it for obscenity. Do you want to take a guess? Was it? anger himself nope <laughs> i don't know who was it it was the american nazi party Ew. yeah they were mad because he used he, they accused him of misusing their flag in the film because there's a swastika flag in the movie okay so according to anger it was the nazis who originally called the police to report the film and this is what he said he says quote they thought it was insulting their flag which was very true not that you see very much of it they phoned up anonymously to the vice squad in la and denounced it as porn or obscene or something and in those days in 64 the police had to investigate if they got a complaint they went there and without even watching the film they just seized it and the poor manager of the theater was arrested and had to be bailed out so thank you, Nazis, for you got, a, you got a you got a lot of nerve, <laughs> right? American Nazi Party. You got a lot. I don't know where you get the stones. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, they're Nazis, so you expect dickish behavior. Yeah, he was also sued by the Lutheran Church for copyright infringement. Wow, uh, because yeah. he had used yeah. the movie The Living Bible. It was ultimately determined to be an example of fair use. And so about that, he said, after the film was shown all around the country, I got a letter from the Lutherans. Aren't you using our Sunday school film? And I said, yes, it's called fair use and said, you should be ashamed of showing this kind of cliche stuff to children. Showing a simpering Jesus is not really helpful. <laughs> so again, like just not a guy 
with a lot of shame or a lot of like apology in him about really anything he did. Okay. So just kind of to wrap things up, I'm going to very quickly run through just um, some of his other kind of important films. I'm not going to spend a lot more time on it. So he did a film right after Scorpio Rising called Custom Car Commandos. It's a three minute short film showing a young man buffing his customized hot rod in front of an amorphous pink background. Um, And it's scored to the song Dream Lover by the Paris Sisters. Okay. Um, so it's it's pretty gay. After Scorpio Rising, he Scorpio Rising was such a huge hit that he that's this is when he became kind of the public figure of Kenneth Anger. Okay. He was also very infamous for Hollywood Babylon at this point. So he became very well known in the counterculture. He was embraced in the hippie scene. He himself embraced all this new publicity. Um, he started calling himself the quote most monstrous movie maker in the world. This was a takeoff of Crowley's <laughs> wickedest man in the world. <laughs> okay. okay. As he became more famous, he started becoming friends with rock stars. He became friends with Anton LaVey from the Church of Satan. I think I mentioned in his Invocation of the Demon Brother, uh, Anton LaVey actually plays Satan or, or, or maybe plays a satanic priest. Mm. Inger actually became the godfather to LaVey's daughter, Zena. Okay. He was not a fan of Andy Warhol. He resented Andy Warhol's incursions into the underground film scene he actually in 1980 he went to andy warhol's house or a house where andy warhol had been staying and like threw paint all over the front door um because i guess showed him yeah (laughs) and then in 1966 he moved to san francisco and this is where he started planning his film lucifer rising the making of lucifer rising is its own episode so i'm just very quickly going to go through some some of it it was again all going to be about his Thelemite beliefs. It was all about the ideas around this Aeon of Horus and the idea of Lucifer arriving as this kind of light bringer, sort of Prometheus-like character. He saw Lucifer, he said he has to be like a teen idol type character because he saw um, Lucifer as the, quote, crowned and conquering child, which is, I think, part of Thelema. It's like a, a Thelema mythology. And while he was in his build, living in this apartment building in San Francisco, planning this movie, he started meeting a lot of young men who were hanging around trying to find someone to play Lucifer. And the person he chose was a young man named Bobby Boussoulet. Now, Bobby Boussoulet, he was supposed to play Lucifer, and then he even recorded music to be used on the soundtrack of the film. But they had a falling out after Inger accused Boussoulet of stealing the footage that he'd shot so far. Okay. They went their separate ways, and Bobby Boussoulet would eventually go on to join the Manson family mm. and was later convicted of torturing and murdering Gary Hinman during a robbery gone wrong. And this was this is largely considered kind of the first of the Manson family murder, or the first known Manson family murders before Sharon Tate and everything. Okay. This is around the time Inger went over to London. He became friends with uh, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, Anita Pallenberg, and managed to convince... Uh, all of them to appear in um, Invocation of My Demon Brother, mm-hmm. which, uh, like I said last time, was sort of a loose remake of Fireworks. Jagger, Mick Jagger composed the music for the movie. It was released in 1969. At this point, he got back to making Lucifer Rising. Um, he convinced Marianne Faithful to appear in the movie. He tried to get Mick Jagger to play Lucifer, but Mick Jagger said no. So he ended up casting Mick Jagger's brother, Chris, because I guess might as well. Yeah. He shot eight minutes of the movie, used that to get 15,000 pounds from the British National Film Finance Corporation to complete it. This provoked outrage in the British press because of Anger's reputation. 
but he used the money to fly his cast and crew uh, to filming locations in Egypt and West Germany. Around this time, or maybe a little bit later, he befriended Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin. Uh, Jimmy Page also famously was like super into Aleister Crowley. And Jimmy Page was actually living in Bolskine House in Scotland, which I think I mentioned last week is on the shores of Loch Ness. And Kentinger went and stayed with him for a while. And while there, he supposedly helped exercise the Bolskine House of a headless man's ghost. Okay. So, um, you know, helpful, I guess, to have him around. <laughs> so Page agreed to compose the music for Lucifer Rising, I guess. At this point, he didn't want to use the music he had from Bobby Boussoulet. But then he and Page had a big phone now after Page's girlfriend kicked him out of the house. So Inger then went and held a press conference where he threatened to, quote, throw a Kenneth Inger curse onto them. He ultimately dumped uh, Jimmy Page's soundtrack and went back to music that had been composed by Bobby Boussoulet because he and Bobby Boussoulet had made up at this point. This was after Boussoulet was in prison or had been arrested. And he actually recorded the music for Lucifer Rising from prison. Uh, so the 30-minute film of Lucifer Rising was released in 1981. And I'm going to leave it there. Ken Vinger has made a lot more movies than this, but I would say his big ones that he's probably most known for are Fireworks, uh, Scorpio Rising, uh, Invocation of My Demon Brother and Lucifer Rising. Mm. I mean, if Hollywood Babylon is an indication, you know, probably not the nicest guy <laughs> in a yeah. lot of ways. Yeah. But he was really a great and important filmmaker. And if you have any interest in avant-garde or experimental film, I strongly recommend checking out some of his work. And that is my very Cliff Notesy story of the life and work of Kenneth Inger. Fantastic. All right. That's what we've got for you guys. So happy Pride. <laughs> happy Pride. Careful what you um, stick up your butt. I hope you guys, yeah, explore your bodies. I hope you guys all go do some gay shit. Be, Be safe. safe. Have fun. Um, and other than that, I guess, yeah, y'all stay weird, stay curious, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Friends will blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.